0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. As the war between Israel and Hamas continues, we are going to spend some time speaking with two people who are trying to provide support to steer others through grief here in North Carolina. Our guests today will talk about their roles as providers of emotional and psychological support within their communities. Later in the hour, we will speak with an associate chaplain at Elon University, Rabbi Moor Green, about the impacts of the war on members of the Jewish community on that campus.
1: You know, a lot of these students may be the great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I think it hits harder the concern about anti-Semitic violence when you have family stories about it, and there's a there's sort of a transmission in the body. You can't tell people what they're feeling isn't real, what they're feeling is very real. Um, the fear is very real.
0: First, we talk with a Muslim therapist from Raleigh who has many Muslim clients and has presented on mental health coping strategies for Islamic community organizations since the war started. Basir Maruf, welcome to do South Thank you. pleasure to be here. How
2: are you? I'm okay. I'm taking it one day at a time but yeah yeah today I'm okay.
0: Frame up for me, please give me a snapshot or a sense of what these last two months have been like for you.
2: The moment in the, pa- the past two months has been very emotionally draining and there's been a variety of feelings. Obviously, I'm navigating my own stuff and that's been a challenge because I'm also kind of a part of the community and I'm also uh, experiencing what you know my community peers are experiencing. Um, but people need support, people need help, people need um, guidance. I think the biggest struggle that I've I've had the past two months is knowing how to provide that, knowing what to provide, or how I can be of service. Social media plays a huge role in it. Yeah. As far as, thing, you know, waking up and having my phone be, you know, uh, just going off. I mean, this yeah. is the
0: heaviest, weightiest stuff. And if you're yeah. waking up and seeing it, like... Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a thousand
2: it, pounds. And it's, it's, it's important to, to humanize this, the experience. I mean, it, it is witnessing extreme violence has been really, really challenging. And there's different opinions about how to go about it. You know, I have a lot of therapist friends, uh, Muslim therapist friends who were like, I'm, I can't I can't see this stuff. I mean, there's a limit. It's not conducive to anything. It's not helping me. It's not helping anyone else. Others would say, well, it's a form of empowerment. Knowledge. It's a form of uh, knowledge to learn what's going on. It's a form of advocacy. It helps people feel empowered that they're doing something, you know, playing a role in at least helping spread awareness of what they're seeing. There's two parts to this whole thing of uh, what makes it really challenging for, for Muslim Americans, right? The first part is what I just described, seeing what we're seeing, witnessing um Footage, videos, photos, firsthand uh, accounts, detailed descriptions of things that are really horrific. I mean, we're talking about things that you would not even seen in a horror film. Right. Right. Um, And I I don't want to get too specific about, uh, you know, what's happening politically. But uh, the biggest thing that I keep that people struggle with, including myself, is um, when it's involving children. Mm -hmm. That is just very crippling. You know that it it's it haunts people right because you you know people will see children suffering and then look at their own kids at home and think this could happen to my own children right and it's like a I can't describe it in words it's like it's such a very strange type of emotional pain you know it actually reminds me of um parents would describe the struggle of trying to help a child like a teen who's struggling with addiction, Mm -hmm. you want to help, but you can't, you can't, you can only do so much. And the visual that represents that type of experience is like seeing your child underneath a frozen ice Mm -hmm. surface and they're underneath trying to break the ice and you're trying to punch and break the ice, but you can't. So you see them suffering right in front of you, but there's this barrier there. So seeing pain, suffering, deep human suffering of people that are very vulnerable already. That's the first part. And the second part is the inability to do something, the inability to not just act on it because of obviously like physical barriers, uh, but also speak about it too. And that's the really uh, hard part for a lot of people.
0: As it pertains to the war, what kinds of conversations, acknowledging there's likely a range of them, but what, what are I guess some of the common themes or some of the common conversations that you're having with your clients who are Muslim, what are the conversations? What are the concerns? If you want to pull the curtain yeah. back a little bit, some of the raw motions and, and let me just, I guess, yeah, yeah. frame it this way. How have the conversations changed if at all between early October uh, and here in, in the, the yeah. final few weeks of the, um, the year?
2: So early on, as soon as the conversation begins, it's this unloading of, I can't believe this happened and this happened and I saw this and I couldn't believe that no one understands and no one cares and what is going on. And it's just a, this overflow of.
0: It's a release. It's a vent.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, they say that's a that's a type of trauma response when a, when a person is kind of scattered. There's just thoughts coming out of everywhere and uh, it's coherent. There's a theme. It's not like, oh, I'm upset about this thing. There's an overload of information, data coming in that's traumatic. And so that is a completely unloaded very quickly. Just in five minutes, you'll hear someone just tell you all these things that they have, that they have seen the shock and confusion about, well, why does this not make everyone else crazy? Am I crazy for, for being upset about this? Like I, this is, people feel like they're in the twilight zone. Mm. Imagine watching like 9-11 and you see 9-11 happen and no one else is like concerned about it. You're Like, what the heck? Are you all seeing what I'm seeing? That's how Muslim Americans feel, mm-hmm. that they're seeing something which is insane and no one else is feeling what they're feeling.
0: It is not being echoed. It is not reverberating to. Yes, right.
2: And so when people are witnessing the stress and they're absorbing the stress, it's not being spread out. They're not able to. That's what therapy is, right? Someone, I hold the pain for someone. They When they're spewing everything out so quickly, I'm holding this pain for them. Um, a lot has changed in the past two months. I, I never thought I would see uh, what I've been seeing as far as the support for Palestinians, the empathy for
0: Palestinians. From well beyond from the reaches from outside of the Muslim, the Muslim community.
2: community. You know, within the Muslim community, that's a given. But uh, outside the community and TikTok and social media and even locally. Like, mm-hmm. I, I remember I was talking to a mentor of mine, you know, Robert, I was like texting him, like feeling very, really hopeless. Like this is, I'm a social worker. I'm all about social justice and advocacy. And like, I'm not, this is hurtful for me to feel like uh, the pain and suffering of this community does not seem to matter. It's just, it's making me question a lot of things. And he, you know, he reminded me, no, people do care. People are out there advocating they shut down the highway and stuff, and they did, and I'm, you know, it, it it is helpful. It is, it helps me see, and it helps people in the community see that this is not something that has to fall all on
0: our shoulders, or my shoulders, or
2: someone's shoulders, right?
0: You mentioned 9-11. You were in middle school when September 11th, 2001, those attacks, that terrible day happened, and the aftermath Uh, which is where I I think I want to go with this to some degree, there was a spike, I don't know if that's the best word or not, in Islamophobia in the months and years Mm -hmm. that followed. From your perspective, similar things transpiring now, or is it different? And if it's different, why?
2: It's uh, more, actually. So there's actually data on this uh, that um, incidents of discrimination based on faith. Actually, Muslim Americans face a really high rate of discrimination. Statistically speaking, and the numbers are actually really high, higher now than they were after 9 11. Reports of um, incidents that have happened, uh, and they've been pretty high since uh, also since 2016. The Muslim ban also was uh, correlated with a lot of uh, an increase mm-hmm. in incidents. Yeah. The last I read, actually, it was just the other day about 60% of Muslim Americans report facing some type of incident, which is the highest amongst any faith group. It's also different now. I remember 9-11 being in uh, seventh grade and everything I was watching on TV, you know, just in this little box. Right. No other. um, There was no social media. Yeah, there's no social media. So when they would start talking about Islamic this and terrorist this and I remember being a kid and being so angry at the TV, so mad that people were misusing and, um hijacking the religion, giving the religion in the community such a bad name. And I remember thinking, this is not, that's not who we are. But that's a good question, though, as far as like how uh, Islamophobia after 9-11 correlates or relates with what's happening now. I think that it's definitely part of the same narrative. Yeah. You know, that, you know, you have a lot of people who don't know a whole lot except for what they see and read, right? So they are coming in to this whole situation Already with his preconceived notion that Muslims are in some way uncivilized. And that's what Islamophobia is, right? It's this fear of this thing or these people that somehow are uh, unsophisticated, uncivilized, Mm. barbaric, animalistic, right? So I think that plays a huge role, actually, now that I think, now that I reflect, because Muslim Americans feel like if we didn't have that mindset already as a collective, which Islamophobia is a very real thing, then maybe there would be more of an outcry about the children in Palestine who have lost their lives. They wouldn't be so dehumanized. The dehumanization is something that, as a community, we've been battling for a long time. But I also have to say, though, that as problematic as Islamophobia is, the people that I talk to in the community, and including myself, I, there's no space in my heart for me to worry about or think about that, because mm. it's that space is occupied
0: by the people overseas. Basir Marouf is a therapist and a Muslim from Raleigh. Our conversation continues in a moment. And later, we welcome in Rabbi Moore Green, Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life at Elon University. I'm Jeff Tibiri. You're listening to Do South. Welcome back. It's Due South on North Carolina Public Radio. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Later this hour, we'll continue to explore the mental health impacts of the war between Israel and Hamas here at home with Rabbi Maor Green of Elon University. First, back to my conversation with Basir Marouf, a therapist and a Muslim based in Raleigh. So let me turn it back to social media. Yeah. You, you talked a little bit before about, you know, different schools of thought. How are you dealing with social media and what do you recommend recommending to uh, either clients patients or people in your community What is what is your what's your preference or belief on how to handle social media in this time
2: my own personal
0: yeah and what are you recommending because i know who what's clinically
2: sound and then i have my own personal thing to, what's clinically sound is to obviously limit what you're exposed to right you know
0: what's your personal thing
2: my personal thing is I, I grew up feeling very um powerless when it came to the narrative that exists. I was just I'm just a bystander. I'm just a witness to everything. So for me, uh, sharing something, making a comment, reposting something, engaging, I feel like I'm helping shape the narrative. I feel like I the narrative has shifted in the past 2 months. I feel like Muslims are a tiny bit more humanized now than they were a month ago. Activism on social media has played a role in that. Uh, it probably came at a really big cost. You know, I know a lot of people, I, clients have told me that they are uh, they are using it unhealthy, in uh, unhealthy ways. You uh-huh. know, it's affecting their sleep. And there's, it's a generational gap, too, by the way.
0: Significantly my, so. But my please.
2: parents, my mom is like, don't post anything on social media. Because after 9-11 was a Patriot Act. And there was a lot of fear, you know, growing up. And I know people who got in all types of weird situations because of being... You know their phones are tapped and being monitored and stuff. I mean, this is a real thing that affected our community and was was traumatic, right? Because it was a this is fear instilled in us of don't rock the boat. It's also kind of an immigrant mentality thing too. Right. Do your job, don't ruffle any feathers, stay in your lane. And the young generation is like, man, nah, f that. Like we're just gonna, we're this is wrong. This is this is not right. When it comes to, like, morality, they're like, I will stand for what I believe in, you know? When Islamophobia goes up, by the way, the community becomes gets closer together. That's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. But it's also negative, too, because the community gets more—the ideas get more reinforced. That is concerning to me from a mental health point of view because there's a stigma already. Right. And so the closer we get, the more stigma, yeah.
0: And is I wonder if there's a bridge there, if that is— that happens to Muslims. That happens to to Jews, to J- to Jewish people. I mm-hmm. mean that that unfortunately is a reality on multiple sides of this coin.
2: That um, the squeezing the, of the community getting tighter.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a harsh reality and an unfairness and a reminder of the ignorance. I think on multiple sides of this, not to equate, but just to offer the Islamophobia does this, anti-Semitism does this. Is it is that a fair yeah. way of thinking about it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I actually reached out to some researchers because I was looking up some stuff about Muslim mental health and there's some researchers at the University of Miami. I just emailed them and you know they emailed me back, which is, I thought was pretty cool. And, and uh, the research said, if a person, if a Muslim American believes that Islamophobia is high, then their mental health is worse. Mm. And I was like, well, okay, so that must mean that it's in their perspective, that of course, if you think that people don't like you, you're going to be worse off. And they responded and said, well, that's invalidation of the experience because Islamophobia is real and people do feel isolated and people do feel like they cannot um, there's no, there's no space for them to embrace their
0: Muslim identity that they have to kind of hide it away. Basir as I was getting ready for this conversation and thinking about it, I said, all right, is there, is there, you know, I want to know about whether or not there's anyone in your orbit Who's Jewish, and if you're having conversations with an acquaintance or a friend or a client or a patient or a co- whatever, and you came into the studio today and we're going to get personal to the whatever extent you would like to get personal yeah, here Sure, someone very close in your life is yeah. in fact Jewish. Talk to us, please.
2: yeah, my wife uh, my wife is, is Jewish um, actually, I did not know she was Jewish when we went on our first date, okay and it when she told me it changed the way I saw her, and I'll explain. Uh, it was at the end of the day, and she said, oh, yeah, I'm Jewish. And I said, oh, really? I said, okay, so you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and know that some people just don't like you. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a shared experience. Did she laugh? She laughed. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> at least in my memory she laughed. I think she laughed, yeah.
0: I can and, see her through the glass right now. Yeah. She's over your left Is shoulder, laughing? and she's laughing right yeah, now, okay. yes.
2: The shared experience in that, well, we're a small community. We're a small group. And there's a lot of um, misinformation. There's a lot of people who have, who view us in a negative light. There's a lot of pain in that. You know, there's a lot of, um, it's uncomfortable to, uh, or it can be unsafe emotionally to just walk in a room and say, oh yeah, I'm Jewish or oh, I'm Muslim, right? I don't know what people think, you know, it's not, uh, there's no guarantee of how people Mm -hmm. will respond to it, right? And she's shared plenty of experiences. Her father was uh, friends with uh, someone who was killed in the uh, that hate crime in Pittsburgh. Uh, At the
0: synagogue.
2: Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Tree of Life, I think. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I know someone, my friend growing up, Dia Barakat, he was killed oh in a hate crime in Chapel Hill. Of course. Uh, there's been other things that have happened uh, that we both, you know, are connected to. I don't know. Not to say that it's like a trauma bond. I mean, there's obviously the relationship is much deeper than that, uh, than just, you know, These, like, negative things, right? But she's my best friend. Uh, My family loves my wife. Incredibly so. Her being Jewish was never anything that anyone ever thought twice about. We have a lot of similarities when it comes to uh, the faith, by the way, which is, you know, Islam is built on the foundations of Christianity and Judaism. You know, Mm -hmm. we believe in Prophet Moses. We believe in Prophet Abraham. These are really important figures in the Islamic tradition. So, um, I, I am able to separate, you know, what's happening from people and faith and communities. And that's what I think the world needs is to be able to separate that. There's no such thing as a, no group is a monolith, Israel, Palestine, America, the Jewish community, the Muslim community. There's so much diversity in thought And how people approach things, how people approach life. So, um, yeah, my wife's Jewish.
0: Basir Marouf's Jewish wife was with him during our interview, which we taped earlier this week. She sat behind him in an auxiliary studio, sipping coffee for the better part of a half hour. She and I were directly facing each other as Basir and I spoke. And it was at this point in the conversation when we went off script and I asked if she would like to join our conversation. She obliged. Katie, welcome to Do South. Thank you. This is not the likeliest of unions, but uh, it, it works uh, based on what you're telling me. I'm not going to play couples therapist here. So yeah, don't yeah, worry. Yeah. Um, what are the conversations like for y'all as it pertains to the weight of the last two months? Are you talking about this every day, once Be- in a while?
3: I would say it's pretty much every day that we're talking about it and just sharing things that we're seeing online. I'll be like, are you seeing this? Did you see this? You know, we're sharing things back and forth. So it is a topic every day.
2: And I, I mean, I I do have uh, to sometimes set a boundary up because she'll be watching a video that can hear, like, you know, a missile or something play from her speaker on on her phone. I'm like, I I can't like, you gotta just, Mm -hmm. you know, let's just take a timeout. Let's just enjoy this show for a second, you know, and just kind of relax. Um, So that's that's been, you know, it's definitely been a a part of
0: uh, daily life, but that's been a challenge too, I think. It has been. I'm interested in the family dynamics. Y'all are working through this Mm -hmm. very heavy moment together, saying at times, like, no, I I need the speaker off. I don't need to hear another effing missile uh, Mm -hmm. ripping through the air. Uh, Have you had to set boundaries for your families or uh, just other boundaries as you seek coping methods, as you seek a way to plod through this
3: i think there was a level of fear with my family my family comes from mixed background to be like where do they stand we don't know my family has a tendency not to really discuss things so we didn't really know and it took time and it took a little like tiptoeing i would say to be like where do they stand on this where are they Mm -hmm. and they had to do a deep dive on the history of everything So I think at this point, everyone is really on the same page and on agreement. But it took some time to feel comfortable to openly discuss. With his family, you know, they live right down the road. We're already discussing things. I'm spending time with his dad. Immediately, we're just kind of talking about what we're seeing. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Our families have very different ideas of boundaries, (laughs) <laughs> Funny
0: how that happens with all kinds yeah, of right, right marriages right. yeah right.
2: you know my my you know my mom is a very an indian mom she's going to get all up in your business and ask you know and just be very involved in a in a loving way right yeah. but it's very tight knit you know uh, your family is mm, just has the more but boundaries it, you know they're just yeah. not as open about certain things
3: It's interesting though because i feel like with your mom she doesn't want to see what's on social media quite mm. as much. I'll be like, you know, she's not on.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: She's not on any social media. Thank God. Yeah. And exactly. So I'll be like, did you see any videos? She's like, no, I don't want to see it. With my mom, she's super active on social media, so I I can have that conversation. It yeah. took time, but I can be like, did you see this or and I can share things and she can share things back and forth too cuz she's very active.
0: Yeah. This moment is new. This particular set of circumstances is two months old. Uh, This, sadly, is not a new reality for Jewish and Muslim people living Mm -hmm. around the world or Americans. Kind of that acknowledged. I'm curious about what gives you hope, what gives you optimism for yourselves individually, for
3: your family. To be honest, it's hard to have—it's hard to see a light of when, you know, where the end is, when it's going to stop. What do you think?
2: I think um, I tell people regarding the situation, this is not the time to heal. This is a time to cope. Healing happens when the trauma is done. So I think right now we're just coping day to day. Um, But deep down when it comes to as far as hope goes, I mean, do you feel like you've, I shouldn't be asking you questions, but do you, I mean, are you saying you, I've always feel like we've, there's still hope at the, you know, there's always, that's always there, I think.
3: Yeah. I think I'm just trying to see when, when it's going to be end. I feel like we're kind of just at the beginning and there might be, there's going to be things that are, will be lifelong. So I'm trying to be like okay, what, what is going to come? When is it going to end? What's going to come six months after, a year after? I think that's kind of where my mind is.
0: You can take this beta you can, yeah. uh, but in between six and 12 months, of course, is nine months. Uh, and there are new beginnings. And you may or may not, Basir, have mentioned a potential new beginning when you came into the studio. But you're forming a family here. You are a family. You might be getting larger as a family. So Tell me about the the calculus, the (laughs) mindset there. I don't want
3: to. It's
0: your news if you want to share it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So we found out we were expecting just a couple of days ago. Friday. Yeah. Friday Friday morning. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you.
2: She told me Friday morning. I was half awake. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Uh, I was trying to. I was trying to relax too for this interview. I was like, I gotta get. I'm gonna spend the weekend just not, (laughs) you know. But we're so happy though.
3: Yeah, we're very excited. Very and
2: excited. going back to hope. Yeah, I think that um, as humans, and this might be a little cheesy, but as humans, we're all trying our best. I really believe that. And we're all trying to improve. Uh, it's all about the next generation. Right. It's always about the kids, you know, in the future and trying to learn from what's happening and try to uh, like I have a lot of Muslim friends who they went through a lot of, um, you know, just hard times growing up as Muslim. They have kids. They want to make it better for their kids. Right. Right. Um, like we have, you have to, we have to find hope, you know, for the future. Yeah. For right. It's to and it's scary though too, right? Because the world can be a really dark place, but this is how change happens, right? I think by not viewing someone as, as a label, mm-hmm. seeing them as a therapist, as a clinician, that that's the beauty of the work is like seeing a person for who they really are. Beyond all of the other layers, I think that's something that we both can help the future, uh, our family. And yeah. I mean, that's just us being, per- you know, our own family, right?
3: Exactly. And and our son, he very proudly walks around and goes, I'm all three.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, you know. Uh,
3: all three, you know, all three fates. He loves it. Yeah. He's seven, so he has no... No shame about it. He's very proud, yeah. you know, it's a very interesting way to to grow up. Very right. different. Identify. Yeah. So he'll have a very unique perspective, and so we're all, we're a future child.
2: Yeah, it's, that's so crazy to say. You're the first person that knows. Besides, thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah we have not yeah. told anyone.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
0: <laughs> that
2: just how do feel, feel?
0: How do you feel to hear? I mean, just to be the first person to to know that. I'm honored. Yeah, I I truly am. <laughs> I'm honored. I suspect you didn't wake up Friday morning and think, the eh, yeah. first comment to tell is that <laughs> right. fellow brother of the right. bald brotherhood on the radio. Yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah.
2: It's such a, that's a, that's a curveball, you know, cause it's such a, I mean,
0: it, it starts. Finding pick, out you're going to have a child in the midst of this is a curveball. It just makes sure i or is that what you were alluding to? I think to, just or? having
2: a kid in general. It's
0: a massive yeah. curveball, yes.
2: But yeah, yeah. I really saw it, to be honest, like there was a lot of darkness in this past two months, you know, and um, I view it as a little light. You know, and, and it feels selfish for me to say that. It's like because it's light for us. <laughs> but, you know,
0: uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Basir Marouf and his wife, Katie, live in Raleigh. Our next guest has also been providing emotional support for members of their community. Rabbi Mahor Green is Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life at Elon University. And our conversation begins with Rabbi Green sharing some of the deep seated fear felt by some on campus.
1: So students at at Elon have experienced anti-Semitism before October 7th. That's not like a new thing. It doesn't happen that often, but but it happens, whether on Elon's campus or, you know, when out and about in Alamance County. I think the attacks on October 7th have kind of Brought up this this major fear of a of a much more significant anti semitic incident that in my mind is is um, informed by intergenerational trauma. You know, a lot of these students may be the great grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I don't think there are any that are grandkids. There there are staff um, who are. Um, Two generations. Remote. Two generations, for example. So the there is a it, it's it's. A, I think it hits harder the the concern about anti-Semitic violence when you have family stories about it, and there's a there's sort of a transmission in the body of that that is that's you know you you can't. <laughs> You can't tell people what they're feeling isn't real. What they're feeling is very real. Um, The fear is very real. And, you know, I I do think that the parents might be slightly more concerned than the students, but a lot of students are concerned, too. You know, I mean, this year before, before October 7th, I knew of a student who was on the receiving end of a joke about the Holocaust from another student or, you know, another student. Who and this is a previous year who who was in a drugstore and got called by an anti-Semitic slur, and you know there there's we have police presence at at all of our events on campus. A lot of students were concerned about what was it going to be to really come out and be very publicly Jewish on Elon's campus. Was it going to attract some type of anti-Semitic incident? You know, thank God that has not been the case so far. I, I do think we have it in our in our minds. You know, in the, in a synagogue in in Raleigh and and one in um, Chapel Hill before you know. I think in in September, I don't quite remember the dates, but they were swatted where someone falsely called in a a bomb threat, and you know, police had to come investigate. It turned out to be false, but it it, it was a it was a targeting. So I think I think people are worried that. First of all, that there's sort of the fear of something happening, um, which swatting sort of plays on that fear. And then also just like, I mean, it only takes one crazy person with a gun. And there's a lot of uh, just really an increase in anti-Semitic rhetoric. And the concern is that that will that that might translate into action.
0: Yeah. Right, I, I mean, just for context, it's not only rhetoric. I mean we've, no, it's not just P- rhetoric. Pittsburgh is is perhaps the most prominent and right. devastating example of the last few years. This is not just rhetoric anymore. Right. Um, yeah.
1: no, it's it's I think the concern is that what happened in Pittsburgh would happen. well, I think I think there's not just the concern. I think there's an understanding in some ways like illuminated by this intergenerational trauma that what happened at Pittsburgh could happen at any single synagogue, day school, Hillel, Jewish college campus situation, that it could happen anywhere, including at Elon. I think, I think we're, we're aware of that, and it it's there.
0: We return with Rabbi Maor Green in a moment. I'm Jeff Tabiri. This is Due South on WUNC. This is Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Earlier this hour, you heard from Raleigh therapist Basir Maruf, who is Muslim. We're speaking now with Rabbi Maor Green associate chaplain for Jewish life at Elon University. And I asked Rabbi Green about navigating the weight of this moment across the last two months.
1: I think I would say that I've been, it's felt complicated as a lot of students and, and fellow staff have really been confronted with the war and then with all the ramifications of that sort of socially um, and emotionally and, and spiritually also. And I think as, as somebody who works with a lot of students and is also processing the same events real time, it's, it's been a real challenge.
0: This is professional for you. This is personal for you. And I, as I was thinking about getting ready for this interview, I thought, OK, is, is Rabbi Maior waking up to a dozen text messages and missed calls and is the email box inundated? And is there just not a break available? Like how overwhelming has the last two months been?
1: They have been quite overwhelming, but I don't think it has been sort of one movement. I think the sort of the weekend that it was unfolding was actually a Jewish holiday. The week after it happened had been a planned week where I was going to take some comp time for having worked extra hours during the high holidays, and and actually I just went back to Elon and was with students and. Uh, You know, I think the initial sort of brunt of it was was trying to figure out what was actually going on initially and and what the what were the terrorist acts of Hamas in terms of the students and in in terms of myself was also who do I know personally that's been affected in Israel? Um, A lot of the students have family and friends. Um, I certainly have friends. I've I've lived in Israel two and a half years of my own life. So I think it was there was that kind of obsessive refresh button and i think as it as it has gone on as the conflict has gone on the needs of students have really shifted and and my own needs have shifted and so i think whereas kind of initially there was this desire to to gather particularly among among the jewish students to gather and really sort of pray for hostages and pray for those who've been harmed as time has gone on more students have sought out one-on-one conversations as they kind of sort out what's going on in the conflict. You know, it's very challenging as a pastoral caregiver to to process my own emotions while also holding space for others. I can say that everyone else that I'm working with at the Truett Center and in Jewish, Jewish Life is having to manage the same thing. Um, it's just kind of part of the job sometimes. And I, I will say that being able to be present to students as they, as they kind of deal with with some of the fallout has been really meaningful.
0: You mentioned the needs of students and that those needs have shifted across the last couple of months. I want to get there uh, in this conversation. Before we get too far into it, size up your community for us, who it is you're working with on a, on a regular basis and who's in that community.
1: Sure. So Elon has approximately 800 Jewish students. We are the largest percentage of the student body population. I'm not saying this quite right, but UNC Chapel Hill has more Jewish students in the student body, but we have the highest percentage of Jewish students in our student body in the state of North Carolina. And as Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life, they are the primary community that I work with. They're not the only community that I work with, because I work with all students and, and and staff and faculty across Elon. So I have checked in with Muslim students. I've checked in with Christian students who are um, politically progressive, who are trying to figure out how to handle this, um, how to sort of approach the conflict and be politically progressive and not be anti-Semitic. So I've really worked with a range.
0: Let's pivot back to early October You've talked about the the needs of the students who you engage with. Their needs have shifted. But early October, what were the initial needs from them? What were your conversations like?
1: So, so early October, there were one-on-one conversations that were really more panicked, which were, I haven't been able to get in touch with this relative, or I've been able to get in touch with them and they're okay for now, but I'm really worried about them. Or, this is all really shocking, and I don't know how it's going to end, um, because I think for for a lot of these students, this is a this is something new to to see Israel in a in a vulnerable position, or just to see a sort of wide scale war and terrorism play out on social media is it was just really jarring to people's systems so I think that the, the initial response was one of just kind of shock and then the need was to be there um, was just to listen and to be there um, on a on a collective level it was very important for many of the Jewish students on campus to gather and have a vigil in support of hostages in support of those that they care about in Israel in support of the state of Israel. That was very important for students to do that. And students led that, I think, Monday night after the attacks on, on Saturday.
0: Rabbi Maor Green, associate chaplain for Jewish life at Elon University, is our guest here on Due South. And across the last two months, you have sought to provide spiritual and emotional guidance during this incredibly difficult time. Our focus, again, here is mental health and how North Carolinians are processing this war. So those are some of the initial needs. Uh, How has it manifested? How has it changed across these last two months or so?
1: I would say in in addition to those, there was the beginnings of people realizing that their friendships were going to change if they expressed political views or, or learning that people that they had been friends with had very different views than they did And how were those relationships going to navigate that difference? And I think um, particularly for for students who identify as progressive and proudly pro-Israel, of which there are a significant number of those at Elon, this is sort of the first time they've been presented with this picture from the external world that those things may actually be in conflict. And figuring out how to navigate that, not just on a theoretical level, but on a personal level with friends and family, I think has been very challenging. Um, And I think that that was, in some cases, that that was beginning, that was sort of there in the beginning of October, but that that I think has become much more central. I'll also say something that that began in October and has remained is a concern with with anti-Semitism on campus. We have been uh, I think relatively lucky, in that we haven't um, we haven't had many instances of anti semitism that I can think of, and and those that we've had have been not major. Um, Elon has really done a lot of work on that, and has did a lot of work before this fall. But I think the 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 fear of it is still very great. So I, you know, we recently had. Um, a refresher on active shooter training, and um, that the students had as well. So I think it's just kind of this this pervasive stress that uh, certainly as this as it as it goes on, you know, initially students wanted to talk about it, and now <laughs> sometimes they want to talk about it, but sometimes they want to talk about anything but the conflict because there's a it's such a it's such a drain on the on the nervous system. It's such a it's such a stressor.
0: Are there particular conversations that linger in your head for you?
1: I mean, I think I in some ways I I also worry about the students who do actually approach Israel with a lot of nuance and actually aren't really talking about it at all with very many people because they know that they will be ostracized if they say something like this and so there's a sort of voluntary silencing. That I think is there's voluntary silencing, but also a sense of like, am I really a part of this community? Am I not a part of this community? I mean, I will say it's striking. I went I went to a, an educational talk last week led by two Palestinian students at Elon and friends and those who are supporting them. And, and some of the social media, you know, the remarks that they made about responses that they had had to their social media posts were basically identical to what I'd heard from some Jewish students. That if you sort of took out the specifics of what they had posted about, the dynamics of it were very similar, of, of sort of relationships fractured after someone made a post, you know, not being acknowledged with people that they thought were friends. Usually there's not a big blow up. Usually it's not a big fight about it. It's just kind of a, a ghosting or a stonewalling or a, a, a sort of shunning.
0: Let's stick with social media. What are the guidelines or parameters that you're offering up to students, if you are?
1: Initially, in the conflict, I advise students to use social media as little as possible, um, because the 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 images coming from social media are intense, and. The extent to which they want to stay up to date on the conflict, that if they can read about it or listen to what's happening and not directly consume images, it's just so much better for mental health. The other thing that I've you know warned them and that I've observed is that the discourse in social media is is very binary. There are two sides. You know, you are either pro-Israel or you're pro-Palestinian, and I I think that that's not helpful because it it exacerbates. What would already be some challenging conversations? In terms of social media, you know, I've told students the less of it that you can use, the better.
0: One thing we haven't discussed yet are the differences in generations. And with students, I mean, I would imagine the vast majority of students you're dealing with are under the age of 25. Um, perhaps there's a, an exception to that rule, but there are staff members, there are professors, there are assistant professors, there are people who are of uh, a different generation. And their parents. And their parents. So, please take it away from me there on the the generational differences that you are experiencing or and and navigating
1: I think that um I think that it's hard to say I'm in a very specific context i'm I'm not going to make any blanket statements about the Jewish community at large in this country but i I do think that parents are concerned that their students are safe on campus is is just a huge thing we get from parents and you know, it's we as an institution, you know, if if there's some incident of harassment, you know, we have procedures for filing bias reports, but we <laughs> there's nothing that we can do. And, and I don't think anything that we should do if somebody says something that a student disagrees with, if there isn't any particular anti-Semitic targeting and a person makes some kind of political statement about the war that that is anti-occupation or potentially anti-Israel, and they're really couching it as a non-anti-Semitic criticism, I feel like sometimes we disappoint parents because we can't, you know, we're we're an academic institution. We we are sort of liberal in the traditional sense of the word in that we want students to be exposed to a diversity of ideas and figure out how to manage that. And so I I kind of hold this sort of with with two hands, sort of on the one hand, I'm, you know, for the for the grief that it often causes students and parents to be confronted with an idea that they don't agree with, like that that grief is real. And being able to hold that and hold the cognitive dissonance of it, particularly in relationships, will make you a better person, like being able to hear things that are that are hard and that that you are diametrically opposed to and still recognize the fundamental humanity of someone else and not just kind of shut down conversation is huge. So, you know, I think it's I think it's our parents are very important. And it's also, you know, I I don't have as much day-to-day interaction with them. So that's also that also makes it harder.
0: And I would say can get you to a place of being better. Not necessarily will. (laughs) splitting splitting hairs here i mean theoretically yes but you you've you've got to you've got to get there
1: i think i think for me one thing i distinguish between is is validating feelings and validating worldviews and stories um and i i think in particular with this conflict there can be two stories that seem to be diametrically opposed that can be true at the same time and i agree with your can versus will but i I do want my students to be able to hold difference. I think this helps. The implications of this are far beyond the conflict. They will be better human beings if they can learn how to do this.
0: Let's talk about strategies for coping with the, the, the range of emotions that I'm sure you have encountered across these last two months. What are the strategies? And if you want to take it one step deeper, short term versus long term, is there much variance between those two?
1: In terms of let's say emotionally coping, I don't know that it, in a short term way. I don't know that it's that different from any other type of crisis in the sense that you know, are you taking care of yourself? Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you exercising? Are you with others in community? Do you have a support system of whether it's friends, a therapist? It is in that sense a a stressor like any other. The ways in which it's I think quite different for a lot of our students is. I'd say, in areas of meaning. For a lot of students, their identity as Jews is very much in relationship to the state of Israel somehow. And as their understanding of the state of Israel gets sort of more complex, their understanding of their own identity is necessarily destabilized. And so there's a lot of meaning-making that kind of needs to happen in that, which I suppose is more of a long-term strategy also, to use your distinction. So you know short term just kind of letting students know that they're loved <laughs> you know and all of the the sort of the implications of that but that that's like that's like baseline like letting students know they're loved that, that there's a place for them that they're you know as safe as we can make them in this mm-hmm. world and then longer term providing sort of new ways to explore so they can construct new systems of meaning or sort of bolster the ones that existed that have gotten more complicated
0: hanukkah begins this week yes what is top of mind or front and center for you
1: you know one of the one of the teachings in around hanukkah is that um there's this or HaGanuz, news there's this there's this hidden light in all of creation that we get to kind of appreciate some of it during Hanukkah, but it's more kind of a a clue that or a sign that there's a lot more there than we can see. And so I, I think, you know, Hanukkah is, a, is is really a celebration of light. And I I I think when I look at Hanukkah candles, I see I like to imagine the light that I can't see. That's that that is there in the darkness that it must be there because I, I believe it's in everything.
0: Rabbi Mayor Green is the Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life at Elon University. Rabbi Mayor, thanks for joining us on Do South.
1: Thank you for having me. Happy Hanukkah.
0: I'm Jeff Tabiri. You've been listening to Do South on WUNC.